Welcome to No More Risks Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income market. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the U.S., Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversation that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host, Zach Griffiths, Senior Investment Grade Strategist. Joining me today is Ben Morgan, an analyst on our U.S. consumer team. Ben, thanks for taking the time today. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me on the pod. All right. So I understand that we are reincorporating the tobacco space into our U.S. consumer goods coverage, and you are leading up that effort just out with a piece looking at the sector from a fundamental and relative value perspective. So why don't you start by just giving us some high-level characteristics of the names in our coverage and what you're thinking for the sector at this stage? Yeah, correct. So we just picked up or re-picked up coverage on four issuers with a total face value of about 86 Seven billion dollars. That represents about one percent of the total U.S. corporates index. It's also pretty much all the debt in the U.S. tobacco sector. So the names we picked up on: we have three triple B rated companies and one low A rated name. The tobacco names tend to carry a little bit longer duration than the overall corporates, but they're lower duration compared to our core consumer goods sector, including kind of food and beverage and home and personal care. As a whole, the industry tends to be seen as almost sort of recession-proof with very inelastic demand for its products and relatively inflation-proof as well, with consumers showing a high degree of sticking purchases within the categories, which I'm sure we can get into. Yeah, that's certainly been important for the economic environment that we've had for the past year and a half or so with inflation moving substantially higher. We're starting to come down. I'd say the latest inflation print for August last month kind of showed continued progress back toward the Fed's 2% target, but definitely still some underlying inflation there. So kind of looking further into the tobacco sector and what you found reinitiating coverage here, how have operating trends fared across the space through this period of elevated inflationary conditions that we've had for quite some time? Yeah, so certainly there have been impacts, especially if we look at sort of purchasing trends related to energy prices or gas, since a lot of purchasing occasions happen in that convenience channel. So we've seen a little bit of an impact, especially with cigarettes, which are still the largest product of the sector. I represent about 90% of industry volume. So tobacco companies have seen costs rise across the board for a variety of inputs and pass through multiple rounds of pricing. We're coming up on multiple years now of mid to high single digit increases in the US. Now, historically, tobacco elasticities are sort of a, a measure of price sens- sensitivity has been low. Management teams have kind of contemplated about a 0.3 or 0.35 elasticity in the space, which is low for our coverage. Even as we've seen the consumer hold up really well, elasticities are a little bit higher in our other consumer goods coverage. However, with the extent of the pricing and the inflationary pressures on the consumer, this has translated into lower volumes. We've seen in the U.S. specifically sort of cigarette volumes decline into a mid to high single digit rate compared to a historical level. 
kind of the low to mid single digits. Internationally, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag. I think we in the US tend to be a little bit skewed or have a, a lower smoking rate and a higher quit rate relative to international markets, but still the multiple rounds of inflation carry through effects of a Ukraine war have resulted in a slightly elevated volume declines. Now, some of this has been offset in the non-cigarette business, especially in what the industry refers to as new categories or next generation products. These include e-cigarettes or vapes, heated tobacco units, and also oral tobacco products or nicotine pouches. These products are seeing increased adaptation in markets around the world. That's providing some offset. It's what we're seeing with the accelerated declines in cigarette purchases. And so is that transition more pronounced to some of these next generation product in the U.S. kind of associated with that higher quit rate on the cigarette side? Or is that a quit rate that you mentioned that's for all tobacco products together? And so you wouldn't necessarily see a substitution in those numbers. It's really more of a uh, market by market sort of basis for how regulators are approaching these products and how they've had uptake with consumers. So it's definitely contributed to some of the accelerated decline of the U.S., but I don't think we can say that's a full driver, just given the extent of the inflationary kind of a pinch on consumers. So I think it's a small piece, I guess, of overall cigarette decline. That makes sense. And so thinking about how these tobacco companies are addressing this shift in trends and terms of preference of how consumers are consuming tobacco. Has that involved in these companies taking a more active M&A approach and and buying up some of these newer companies that are solely focused on these next generation products? And kind of how is that factored into the overall credit metric picture for the tobacco space? Definitely. The transition to these products has been really the key driver of M&A activity in the space. Over recent years, we've seen high profile examples, including Philip Morris's purchase of Swedish Match in late 2022. Also going back to 2018, Altria made a $13 billion purchase of Juul. So it has been a driver of debt funded M&A. To kind of complement that, we've also seen companies sort of organically grow products that they already have and invest heavily behind marketing, sort of getting the overhead necessary to be able to make these products and sort of meet demand. So there has been kind of a complementary approach. But in terms of what we've seen on the leveraging M&A front, overall sector leverage has been in an uptrend since that Swedish match acquisition went through. We've seen kind of aggregate sector level metrics move from a a mid two times range to sort of a 3x area. And really going back to that Altria and Jewel acquisition, a transition to these products in M&A has played a role in sort of pressure leverage metrics. And so I think you mentioned in your piece that some of the deals that have been done on the M&A side have worked out better than others. Has there been any recurring themes or underlying storylines that have contributed to M&As either being successful or unsuccessful in the space over the past couple of years, let's say? Yeah, I think a lot of it has come down to regulatory considerations. Sort of a poster child for this gone wrong is Juul, of course. Altria bought in a 35% stake at $12.8 billion that essentially got written down to zero after the FDA took Juul's flavored products off the market. So obviously not great. And I think there's been a little bit of caution uh, for management teams not to be the next Altria and not to make the next large scale mistake. So I think as you look at the, the Swedish match deal, Philip Morris 
Swedish matches products have been on the market a little bit longer. Zinn was introduced in the US in 2016, made close a deal until 2022. Jewel was a little bit quicker, I think as a 2015 introduction and 2018 deal. And then also just in terms of the demographics and the users, I think the Zinn experience maybe is a little bit less appealing for underage users. And that seems to be the crux of where regulators have kind of focused efforts. So in terms of what makes a successful deal, really making sure that it's going to fit with a regulatory environment and that products are going to stay in the market and not end up with the next jewel. And for a follow-up for Altria, they recently completed a deal that was largely kind of seen as replacing Jewel with NJ Holding or Enjoy Holdings, which is also a pod-based vapor product. However, Enjoy already had marketing approval from the FDA, whereas Jewel didn't. That deal is a little bit smaller and the products aren't quite as maybe widely known or widely used as Jewel was, but that was a $2.75 billion deal that didn't have a ton of impact on credit metrics. And that's sort of what we think you'll see more of moving forward, uh, a little more cautious bolt-on approach. And so thinking about what caused regulators to really focus on Juul, was it the flavors and kind of the inherent targeting of younger people, whether or not they framed it up that way? Just kind of thinking about how this should be considered from a broad regulatory perspective on a go-forward basis. Yeah, certainly the priority seems to be on underage users. That's long been a, a goal of tobacco regulation and sort of continuing that. But there are certainly other regulatory challenges in the market right now. DA has talked about in the cigarette space, placing a federal ban on the sale of menthols and also flavored cigars. So that's been a key source of headline risk. DA came out with proposed rules in April 22, had an extended comment period and some vigorous contentions from the tobacco industry, but we're still awaiting a final ruling on how the agency is going to come down on that. Key driver has been looking at disparities in health outcomes for menthol users and typically more severe compared to non-menthylated cigarette products and also other demographic considerations at play. So you're seeing regulatory challenge across the board, especially in the U.S. Internationally, again, it's a little bit more mixed. Certain countries, such as the UK, have come out with more concentrated public health campaigns. They've placed a ban on menthols. There's been talk of considering a ban on flavored disposable vape products. And the EU as a whole has also come out with a ban on flavored heated tobacco products. So regulatory challenges abound in the space. So what, perhaps this is something I should know, but why are menthol cigarettes associated with more severe health issues? Essentially, it comes down to people become more addicted to it just because the experience is less harsh. So consumption increases. And there's also concerns about tobacco interacts with the chemicals involved in menthol. So sort of taking those two elements ends up with uh, typically worse health outcomes. Right. Interesting. And so beyond that U.S. menthol ban, are there any other regulatory developments that could impact the industry? Clearly there are, but which, if any, are kind of front and center or perhaps more near term in nature from your perspective? Yeah, I guess just to, to flush out the menthol ban, because this is something we could see happen before 2023 year end. The latest update, it was, we were supposed to get final rules in August, but that was extended out several months, according to the latest reports. Operationally for these companies, we don't anticipate the impact to be massive. What we've seen typically is about 85% of menthol users, other jurisdictions will stay within the category. Menthols are a huge part of US cigarette consumption. It's about 37% of a market, according to the most recent data. But if you sort of take that 85, 90% of people staying in the market, it translates to a much lower percentage of that. So then to move kind of outside the US, certainly that EU decision that will 
go into effect in late 2023. We probably won't see much impact until kind of 2020. So that will be interesting to track. Generally, what we've seen is pretty consistent switching from flavored products into non-flavored products. So tobacco companies haven't been anticipating a massive hit to consumption, but certainly to the effect that it's bigger than expected, that could be a headwind. On the other side, we're still seeing a lot of emerging market looking to implement regulatory processes for dealing with these next generation products. They're still banned in a wide swath of the tobacco market. So as you see some of these emerging markets, maybe adapt vapors or modern nicotine pouch products, you could see some offset from that. So those are kind of the trends we're looking at internationally. And so I think if I recall the headlines correctly, or kind of looking at some of the deals considered over the past couple of years, how does the the legalization of cannabis factor into your overall sector view as far as tobacco issuers go? Is there any overlap there? Am I misremembering that? And how does that kind of fit into the whole space in your opinion? No, there is definitely involvement. Each of the four names that we cover have equity stakes at cannabis companies. Currently, I think a lot of it will hinge on the U.S. market just because it's so crucial for the cannabis industry as a whole. We haven't seen much progress in terms of federal legalization. The Safe Banking Act has failed to pass the Senate multiple times. So we're, our base case is for not much improvement, though potentially 20 when you see a, or 2025 with a different political situation. But to the extent that we do see updates in the U.S., we would expect tobacco companies to get more active. We've heard elsewhere in our consumer goods space, names like Constellation Brand also have involvement. There's been rumors about Coke and Pepsi that perhaps taking an interest in the past, but tobacco companies could be a major player in that space. That could drive another area of M&A within the sector. One thing I wanted to go back to before we shift to a relative value discussion, you kind of mentioned that there has been a general leveraging trend from the mid twos up into the three times level. It sounds like the names are, are generally highly rated in the triple B and single A rated. Do you see any of these leveraging trends becoming an issue in the near term from a ratings agency perspective and potential for downgrade? Or will that require perhaps significant more leveraging maybe coming from the cannabis industry to put downgrades from a sector perspective on the front burner, let's say. Yeah, not necessarily. And for its part, management teams across the space have taken a little more conservative stance on leverage. A company like British American Tobacco, which is the largest issuer in the space, has talked about targeting a one-notch rating upgrade to high triple B, kind of managing toward the, the middle of its two to three times target versus current levels closer to three times. I think it's a combination of a higher interest rate environment, maybe trying to keep some some dry powder available in the event that cannabis does kind of become fair game. But we've typically seen companies sort of guide toward a more moderate approach on leverage. Philip Morris, I was put on watch negative after the Swedish match transaction. Management there has consistently talked about bringing metrics back down to sort of pre-acquisition levels. So far, they've been able to hold off the downgrades and we sort of see them getting back to more commensurate levels with their rating in 2024. So our base case doesn't really factor in sort of leverage-driven rating upgrades over the near term. That's helpful. And so shifting to relative value, always an important and interesting discussion for our clients, kind of with all of the topics that we have discussed and gone into your outlook and assessment for the sector. So where do you land in terms of relative value, looking at the tobacco space relative to overall corporates and also within other subsectors in the consumer goods index? 
Yeah. So tobacco spreads typically hang a little wide to both consumer goods and overall corporate. Some of that's just really sort of rating or slightly lower ratings driven. There are also ESG considerations and we understand that not all of our clients can participate fully, but current spreads place the sector index about 50 basis points outside consumer goods and about 30 outside of overall corporates. That's a little bit tight compared to historical levels, but we kind of caution that part of that's driven by there being more Philip Morris debt within the sector index following that Swedish match deal. So that's driven a little bit of compression. We tend to view current levels as offering pretty fair value. We see some good value in the carry trade, especially over consumer goods and sort of where we're seeing a little bit of an uptick in sector M&A, recent deals announced Smucker and Campbell, and then to the overall corporates as well. We think with the management teams talking about leverage improvement with sort of a pricing being a combination of pricing and next generation products being enough to sort of offset core cigarette declines and a sort of a stale environment for large-scale M&A, we come out at a market perform recommendation. Great. And just thinking about sort of the ESG perspective here, and obviously that's been a huge theme across the buy side for several years now, especially in Europe, certainly in the US as well. I think we're a little bit behind. How do the management teams talk about that or consider the potential evaporation of demand from the market? Is it something that they're kind of aware of and there's no real silver bullet? I mean, obviously they're able to finance themselves right now, but is there anything interesting from management's discussion around that or how you kind of consider that ESG backdrop, which seems to be growing and, and obviously is a bit of a headwind for the tobacco space overall? Right. And the management teams will definitely acknowledge it. The pushback tends to be with these next generation products. If you listen into these presentations, they'll spend a percent of the time talking about products that represent 10% of a business. So there's certainly some marketing efforts on that front sort of downplay the tie to cigarettes, but it hasn't hurt them in terms of equity performance too badly yet, you know, sort of longer term. It'll be interesting to see how they deal with it. But for their purposes, they've kind of positioned themselves as being key players in the transition away from tobacco. To a lesser extent, you'll also see them complete some M&A and kind of smoking cessation or healthcare categories in products that can treat associated illnesses. That's still such a small part of the index right now that it doesn't really move a needle on those ESG issues. But we think the marketing teams are going to continue to try to chip away at that angle. Yeah, I guess they got to do what they can. So, all right, we got a market perform on the sector. Overall, you're seeing things as relatively fairly valued. The additional pickup, again, not only overall corporates, but against consumer goods, that looks pretty attractive from a carry trade perspective. The last thing I'd want to ask you before we let you go, do you have a favorite name in your space? I recognize it's only four issuers and there can be some pretty idiosyncratic differences, especially in just the amount that the various issuers issue. But what do you have a top pick for us in the space or they all kind of fall into this market perform bucket with similar risk characteristics? Yeah, there's a little bit of variability within the individual companies sort of looking at a credit by credit basis. We prefer companies with less exposure to US cigarette market just because that's where we've seen the most pressure on consumption. So Philip Morris is a name that we like. We continue to like the deleveraging story there. And then British American Tobacco is would probably be our top pick just considering 
considering how wide it trades to the overall index and also to Altria, which has similar triple B ratings. British American gets dinged as a leading brand of menthol in the U.S. market, Newport. However, U.S., it is British American's largest market, but it still generates 55% of revenue abroad. And we think its portfolio of vapors of heated tobacco, modern oral products have performed strongly and provide enough offset to help us kind of get comfortable with the credit. There's been a management transition, but the new CEOs continue to talk toward deleveraging and sort of downplayed share repurchases in the current environment. So kind of all that collectively helps us get comfortable there. Awesome. Well, thanks, Ben. This has been very helpful. I know I've learned a lot. I'm sure our clients have as well. That's Ben Morgan, one of our analysts on the U.S. Consumer Goods team. I'm Zach Griffiths, your host. Thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you next time on No More Risk Better. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.